the about, Wallace Deadbeats and Muffins? About 10 years. Uh, really? Research because of the uh, looking at every extant Illinois newspaper on microfilm. And there was a long, I, I, could, I won't bore you with the long story of how I was able to do that, but it, it essentially involved me getting my own microfilm reader, those big old machines you used to see in libraries, yeah. and having uh, news, uh, the newspaper microfilm reels shipped to me, and I was doing it at all hours of the day and night. And even then, it took, you know, a number of years. Well, that would have been, uh, having done all that, you probably got about 20 books in you because you went through everything beside baseball, probably. Yeah, that's 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 the trouble with microfilm uh, stuff. Is there's there's other other interesting things in those newspapers, but I ended up using some of that stuff because the book, in a sense, is uh, as much, if not more, a social history uh, than say a sports book or a book about right. Baseball. Well, I think that's what makes it interesting because well, the era and everything else. Well, let me let me get started here, Bob, and then we'll we'll go uh, go through this. Yeah, okay, sure, thanks. On the line with us today, we've got Bob Sampson, the author of Ballas, Deadbeats, and Muffins, and we'll explain all that. Uh, Bob, you're the editor of the Journal of the Illinois State Historical Society. And uh, how long have you been involved with Illinois history? Oh, gee, probably since about 1989. Uh, so that's, a, you know, a few decades there uh, and having the uh, that's in terms of the academic involvement. Uh, before that, I always had an interest in it. Uh, I was a history major as an undergraduate. When I was a newspaper reporter, I liked to do articles that sort of have a, had a historical slant uh, from time to time. Uh, so, uh, you know, I guess most of my life I've been interested. In <laughs> we, should, we should explain the title here. <clears throat> Ballasts, Deadbeats, and Muffins. The ballists are what they call the baseball players. Deadbeats was a team, correct? And Muffins is what they called somebody who wasn't that good, right? Yes, and and the Muffin players that was you know on that was supposedly the worst player in the club, uh, and the name Muffin then became as, uh, as seen in the book associated with special games that were called Muffin games, and these were games that uh, easily pitted teams that never played the game at all or were. Uh, vastly overweight or had some other uh, hindrance and people came out by the hundreds to watch these games. <laughs> the, uh, the, the subtitle is inside early baseball in, in Illinois. And we're, we're talking about early. It is early. It's right after the civil war. Um, it's a period, Bob, correct me if I'm wrong, 1865 to 1870. You kind of really focus in on, um, I know that it goes on beyond that, but, is that the era that this sort of phenomenon of baseball uh, you noticed uh, throughout the state? Yes, uh, and there's a reason why it stops in 1870, because the game that comes to Illinois in 1865 and is greeted with such enthusiasm uh, and literally a thousand clubs uh, spring up all over the state, the vast majority outside of Chicago, is that by 1870, that early spirit of sportsmanship and fun has been uh, replaced by a more hard-edged uh, comp competitive spirit, uh, the beginnings of professionalism, uh, and uh, uh, disputes that come out of that. Uh, you know, teams aren't happy when they lose or they're, they, they blame the umpire's decision, this sort of thing. So that was a perfect uh, a break point, I thought, to, to cover that early game that was, in, in many senses, short-lived but very important. 
uh, baseball, of course, we all know baseball, and I think it's it's pretty much the same. But there were differences. You didn't have gloves, right? No gloves, or well, did that? When did that develop? The gloves are going to come along by the 1880s, and they, you know, today we would say they were pretty primitive, but that was, you know, some form of protection, because at that time the the pitching speed is increasing. Uh, the catcher who used to play uh, quite a uh, quite a bit behind the batter now is stepping up closer to the batter in order to prevent uh, uh, runners from stealing bases. Uh, the equipment would be pretty uh, uh, simple. Uh, these bats were quite often uh, uh, homemade. Uh, the balls, uh, by that point, 1865, you could purchase uh, commercially manufactured balls. Uh, but uh, that uh, uh, that might, you know, always be the, uh, the case. Uh, or the availability might not be that good out here on the prairie. Uh, the, the umpire, another big difference would be that the umpire decisions were not to be questioned. The only player that was permitted to talk to the umpire uh, was the captain, the team captain. Uh, uh, spectators were sort of expected in the early game anyway to, to cheer good plays by both sides. Uh, one thing that people would probably notice uh, most is that if you caught it, uh, you could you could still catch a foul ball on one bound for an out. So say if a ball goes down the third base line and hits in foul territory, and the third baseman runs over and gets it on the bounce, the batter's out. Hmm, that's a that's a difference. And you know, I love the um, you went through a lot of Illinois newspapers in doing this uh, book. Uh, I love some of the comments that you picked out there. Baseball spreading like an epidemic. That comes from the Chicago Tribune. Um, everyone is batting balls and running to bases, young, middle-aged, and old. That was the uh, uh, Cairo Democrat. Uh, you know, and you've got all kinds of comments like that that signaled the advance of baseball right after the Civil War. That was one of the things that struck me uh, almost right away as I started to get into this was this really massive uh, craze. Uh, and, you know, most of these people, the vast majority, probably 98%, had never seen a ball game. That's something out on the East Coast. Or or they'd seen a bat and ball game that might roughly resemble baseball. And there's this really uh, uh, enthusiastic embrace of the game uh, by spectators as well as players. Uh, and we have, of course, we have these clubs cropping up all over the place. Peoria, you know, had uh, 13. Uh, Princeville, you know, uh, Eureka, uh, Chillicothe, uh, it, it was everywhere. And, and, that, and that's true not only in the Peoria area, but all the way from Galena uh, to Cairo. And, and the thing really caught on. It was, um, it, it probably came at a time, and I don't know if we can apply this kind of psychology to the past, but People needed something good. I mean, you, you've been through this horrible war. Country was divided. Uh, and now, you know, it's back to, well, peacetime. Obviously, there were problems there. But now here comes this game that people are playing, and people are excited about it. Yeah, you're exactly right, Steve. I think this is one of the big factors is because you have these, some of, some of the, not all, but some of these players are coming back from the Civil War. The uh, people,
people in these towns have had, you know, sacrifice the last four years. They've had losses. You know, if there wasn't somebody in their family, they probably knew somebody who died or been seriously wounded. And this comes along and it's sort of this uh, avocation or uh, uh, entertainment uh, uh, that uh, people can just sort of, you know, uh, jump into and, and learn as they go. You know, there's some pushback because some people say, well, you know, why are we hearing all these baseball uh, stories in the newspapers? And they'll write to the newspapers and say, well, why don't you just, you know, stop running that stuff? But the vast majority of, of people apparently were uh, very enthusiastic about it. And, and, that, and that continues, it varies from community to community for at least a couple of years, uh, which is remarkable. We're talking with Bob Sampson about his book on early baseball in Illinois, and we do mean early. Um, access to a train line was important for baseball teams that wanted to travel. You mentioned that. Of course, you had the railroad going, um, I won't say full tilt, because uh, that may have come along a little bit later, but it certainly, Illinois had certainly its share of railroad lines. So that assisted, what, travel teams, right? Games that were played between one town and another. Yes, that was, and that was the key, that and river travel. Uh, Peoria was one of the places where they could do one or the other. Uh, <laughs> but it was really remarkable uh, when you, I actually started plotting out, you know, places that had uh, teams on a, on a map from 1867. And uh, of course we can't you know, see it now, but I've got one here at home I, I kept. Uh, these teams just follow these lines of transportation. And in the areas that don't have a good rail connections, you see uh, less teams. Good to keep in mind, too, that this is the point where Illinois is really launching a major railroad building effort that will culminate by the end of the century in the Illinois having more miles of railroad track than any state in the Union. I mean, there were, you know, we we drive we drive by sometimes now these abandoned right of ways, but you know at one time uh, those rail tra railroad tracks just crisscrossed the state in all directions and uh, you know in little bitty places that maybe aren't even on the map now. So that became these two things fed each other, which is what we see if you look at the larger picture of baseball history. You see the same thing happening nationally, especially when we go to the professional leagues like the National League and the American Association and later the American League. Without railroad transportation, without reliable railroad transportation, that wouldn't have happened. And so Illinois was sort of ahead of that in terms of these amateur clubs because they could use uh, the existing rail, rail, railroad lines or ones that were being built. The uh, the popularity of baseball, we, we're talking about it with Bob Sampson that followed uh, 1865 and, and, you know, I think you said kind of peaked in 1870. Um, but there, there were problems there, too, weren't there? Because um, this this should resonate with people uh, today. Gambling uh, became a problem. I guess gambling has been around so long, but it followed baseball, too, right? Yes, and that was one of the things that also surprised me, Steve, as I got into this. And I knew I knew enough about baseball history to know it had been a problem on the East Coast, which was uh, what we would call baseball was called the New York game. And that basically starts in and around Manhattan. And they're having problems with, with gambling. But, you know, we get out here, you think, well, these are, you know, simple 
prairie folk and <laughs> they're farmers and and what have you but boy it was on the sidelines it's referred to it causes trouble uh, it causes at one point or contributes at one point to sort of a uh, a free-for-all down a little place called Ashley, which is where the deadbeats uh, were from. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, it, it it gradually changes the mood of these spectators because now people, I mean, they're actually betting during the game on, you know, who's going to get a hit, you know, not only, the out, not only the final outcome, but, you know, various points in the game. This changes the mood of the crowd, which now has, uh, some of them now have a financial stake in an umpire's decision and so the umpires uh really become uh subject of, of abuse in some cases uh and tied to that which is, uh, goes back to something we just talked about a lot of these towns uh and villages are in competition for railroad connections or commercial development and we still see that you know today maybe not as much but you know uh, town A doesn't like town B, and they go back and forth. They're competing for different things, and they we see it more, I suppose, today in high school sports. But now these ball clubs become uh, a, a a symbol of the city, and so if they don't win, that is seen by some to reflect on the on the village or the town or the city itself, which puts another level of <laughs> and more pressure, more pressure, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and those are the things gambling that plus the just the simple costs. You know, these clubs are self-funded. And I guess I should add here, Steve, these are clubs like we would have a book club today or a stamp club or a, uh, a hunting club or whatever. These were voluntary associations that got together to share this activity. They were not uh, they're not professional organizations. They were self-funded. And so it's, you know, to get on a train. And take all, an afternoon off or maybe a day off of work if it's a long enough trip. Well, that's expensive. And then you mm -hmm. got to pay you got to pay meals, so forth and so on. And so as as the period goes on, by 1868, a lot of these uh, intercity uh, games are are disappearing, except for a few elite teams. Talking with Bob. Bob Sanson about the baseball of another era a long time ago. Um, injuries were, were a factor too, weren't they? Because we talked about the glove factor, the lack of one, but you had broken fingers or bent fingers and all kinds of manner of things as this game developed. Yes. Uh, in, in addition to not having gloves, which, you know, that would, that would deter most of us today from sticking our hand up in front of a ball that's going 60 miles an hour. Uh, they were also learning as they went along. Now, most people, and I, I, I probably you, probably the case for you and others, men and women, have grown up tossing balls back and forth and catching them. Right, mm -hmm. I mean, kids. Whether or not we played any baseball, we have a familiarity with that. These right. people, people in these clubs, this is a new thing. So and. By eight, in 1865, they adopted so-called fly rule, which meant that you they had to catch the ball on the fly, a fair ball on the fly for an out. So they're having to stick those hands up uh, against a ball that is not only going pretty fast, but can be moving, you know, up and down, sideways, or have some spin on it. And the, the collision of that, something like that, with human flesh, does usually not have a good outcome <laughs> unless you really know what you're doing. So you get a lot of, you know, finger injuries. You get a lot of pulled muscles. 
uh, broken collarbones, uh, uh, balls that, uh, you know, will break the skin as they go <laughs> by, causing uh, bleeding and stuff. <laughs> so there's just lots of, you know, uh, I could have probably had three chapters on, on injuries. <laughs> it had been boring after a while because it's basically <laughs> the same thing happened. Somebody gets, you know, hit in the head or they, uh, we did have some people die, though. I guess that we shouldn't make too light of it. Uh, uh, at least a couple of young men uh, died as a result of injuries. Usually, it seems to be uh, they were running the bases, and the, somebody was trying to throw them out, and the ball hit them, uh, usually in the groin or lower uh, stomach area. And it sounds like they probably then had some sort of a internal uh, mm -hmm. Because there's no X-rays or anything in those days, and right, but that that wasn't you know, that wasn't very common. But it, you know, it did 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 occur. A few it did pose a danger. I love the uh, passage you have in in your book. Panna attorney J.C. McQuig was called the Babe Ruth of his era. Quote: Striking the ball so hard, <laughs> it was yeah. termed a hummingbird, posing yeah. a danger to fielders who got in the way. This guy could really hit. Yes, yeah, and he's one of the Civil War, one of the few Civil War veterans, and he's also an Irish immigrant. Uh, he's from Northern Ireland, and he only played well that whole take uh, that whole Pena team, which is just south of Springfield. It was probably one of the best teams in Illinois. It's hard to tell because they, you know, they were not all playing each other. But anyway, they were very good. They only played one year. No, here, but yeah, he and he stayed in Pena. It was a very successful attorney and. He died, I believe, in the 1920s, and on the day of his funeral, all the businesses in town closed, not because he'd been a good ball player, <laughs> because he'd become a very respected member of the community. Uh, but yeah, I would not have, I would not have liked to have been an infielder when J.C. McQuid was at the bat. That's a great name, and and there's so many great names. Um, we always associate names with baseball, you know, Mickey Mantle and things that you grow up with, whether you're a fan or not. Um, and this is a now Albert Goodwill Spaulding pops up in your book. Um, I think was he Rockford? Was that where he was from? Or yeah, that was from the. He was uh, a key part of the famous uh, famous Forest City Club of Rockford, and that actually that that club and Spaulding uh, won national fame in 1867 uh, for a game they won in Chicago. And I think Spaulding was 16 or 17 years old at the time. Uh, he pitched that game. He goes on then to become a professional player. Then he owns the Chicago, what's now the Chicago Cubs for a while. He's a major uh, executive in the National League. I used to tell my students when I was teaching uh, baseball history in college that uh, the trouble with Albert Goodwell Spalding is the more you learn about him, the less you like him. <laughs> it was sort of a baseball's version of a robber baron. Uh, I see. <laughs> and he's also he's also directly responsible uh, for the Abner Double Bay myth. The fact oh, I see. Yeah, you mentioned that in there. There's a whole book about that. I won't you know bore you about it, but it it, it he he knew what he was doing and did it uh, for reasons that were important to him, but certainly were not uh, had any, had no basis whatsoever in historical fact. We're going back to the 1860s, uh, talking with Bob Sampson about his book on early baseball. And, you know, there are there were so many contemporary themes in there. Well, uh, the other one is the African-American players 
their their effort to play baseball and thwarted in some ways, assisted in others. You kind of document that a little bit too, even in that early era. Yes, and that you know that was a tough one to find. Uh, the, the the newspaper coverage uh, of anything involving uh, blacks was just absolutely shameful. Mm-hmm. Filled with uh, racially derogatory terms, uh, condescension, whatever. But you can you can sort of ferret things out, uh, and we do know that there were black clubs because they were you know there was a uh, a segregation rule in uh, by the National Baseball Organization at the time uh, that prevented uh, white teams from playing blacks or having blacks on their rosters if they wanted to play other white teams but they persisted uh and uh, had their own clubs and had a uh, at least one year uh they had their own state championship that was played over in springfield so we don't know a lot about it you know because it's sort of uh, one of those things that was uh, between the cracks and not covered much or if it was covered it was covered in a very uh nasty way uh, but baseball you know just as it reflected this uh, desire after the Civil War for some distraction, for some enjoyment. It also reflected the practices of the time, because that's exactly when, around 1866-67, when the National Association of Baseball Players, that was the national organization, adopted this rule, uh, essentially banning blacks. Why did they do that? We talk about in the book, the bottom line is they were trying to grow the game in the South, and mm. the only Southerners would uh, go along with the game as if it was racially segregated. So uh, it took a long, long time, as we know, to get over that. But we did. Thank goodness. It took a while, but we did. Um, I, I, I love the, the, well, one last thing, Bob, and that's, are you at all concerned as a historian and as a teacher and so forth, you put so much uh, time into surveying newspapers to gather, as you say, what you could, uh, you know, and it reflects the times because you didn't get full coverage. You got the coverage that was available, but you got something. What happens now when newspapers, especially in smaller towns, and I'm thinking of the many of the papers that you saw, you know, sifted through, uh, either aren't there or aren't or no longer are running what, they used to run does that give you a pause when when you think about it yes it's going to be a real challenge for uh future historians of any topic if if it involves well what what was what was being said or written in uh, around the state you know illinois is not chicago it's not peoria it's not uh, belleville uh you know it's all of that and everything in between and the only right. thing in the book is if you're going to understand that you have to get the whole picture I don't know what they're going to do in the future because not only the lack of newspapers, but so much stuff now is on social media, uh, electronically. I'm not, I'm not sure uh, how you access that stuff if it's even possible. Now there's some places that do have you know electronic archives, but it, it would be a major undertaking. So, well, you know, I won't be around to see it, but eventually. Uh, future historians uh, will have to come to grips with that and find ways to try and tell those stories uh, by accessing the uh, contemporary information. 
In the meantime, we have ballasts, deadbeats, and muffins inside early baseball in Illinois. Bob Sampson, thank you so much. Um, this has been great. It's a wonderful piece of history, as you say, not just on baseball, but on the times, that era uh, between the you know, 1860s. And that's, that's an era that we often don't get much information about. Well, thank you very much, Steve. You've asked some great questions and even got me thinking about some things. Having spent, you know, 10 years on this, you've given me some new ideas. And it's <laughs> a pleasure. Thanks again, Bob. Take care, man. Thank you. Bye-bye.